Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning will be from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 7. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that passage of scripture on page 110. So that is the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 7. Now hear the word of the Lord. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're going to continue talking about Sabbath questions today. That's coming from John chapter 5, where we were looking at the issue of whether or not Jesus actually broke the Sabbath. So our study of whether Jesus actually broke the Sabbath led us to have various questions relating to how the Sabbath interacts with the Christian or how the Christian ought to interact with the topic of the Sabbath. I want to recommend a book to you that not only touches on the issue of the Sabbath, but also the application of the law of God to the Christian life. Uh, This is a book called Pathway to Freedom. It's by Alistair Begg. Many of you listen to Alistair Begg on the radio or you've downloaded his sermons. He wrote a book, very helpful book, about the application of God's law to the Christian life. That we are no longer bound to the law as a means of earning justification or being made right with God, but even in the Christian life, the law continues to be a guide and an instructor to teach us what's pleasing in the eyes of God. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, our ambition is to be pleasing to Him. So... So if the law tells us what's pleasing in God's sight, and we have an ambition birthed in us by the Holy Spirit to be pleasing to the Lord, then the law becomes a guide for us to understand what exactly that would look like. This book is very helpful. It's very approachable. It's written in a very simple way. I would highly recommend it. So Alistair Begg, Pathway to Freedom. You can pick that up if you want. So with that being said, why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's blessing to attend us as we come to his word. Our Heavenly Father, we do uh, rejoice in all that you've given us in Christ our Lord. All we have is Christ and all we need is Christ. Lord, what a joy to be able to sing that song as a confession, a confession of faith back to you in acknowledging that we have no hope, we have nothing other than what our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you for your perfect life. We thank you for your atoning death. We rejoice in your resurrection, which is not only your vindication, but is also the vindication for all of those who hope in you. Lord, we thank you for the day of glory that's coming when you will split the sky and you will be seen by all in your magnificent glory. And your people will be in awe of your wonder and splendor and the nations of the earth will mourn because you come to judge the world in righteousness. Lord, we thank you for the great hope of the gospel. And as we're studying in Sunday school over the next two months, we pray that that gospel would drive us with a sense of urgency to declare the good news of Christ to those who have not heard. Whether that's those who are local here around us or whether it's those across the globe on the other side of the world. Lord, we want to be... uh, daring for your sake to share the good hope of Christ with the lost. 
And uh, Lord, we, have, we live in a dark world that's, from our perspective, can seem to be growing darker. But what a good reminder it is to know that, that your light is still shining. You are still converting. You are still calling sinners to yourself for your glory. And, and you are calling us, as those who have been redeemed in Christ, to join in on that, on that effort. Lord, please give us wisdom to know how we ought to do that and how we can best serve the work of global missions as a small little local assembly of your people here in Stillwater, Minnesota. Lord, we thank you for the many missionaries that we do support. And um, this month we're focusing especially on David and Rebecca and their children who have been serving for many years in uh, a challenging country, a challenging environment, and, uh, but who have been faithful in sharing your gospel. Lord, we want to lift them up to you as a, as a church body and ask that even now at this moment you would fill them with your spirit. Or that you would empower them for their ministry, that you would give them a clarity of thinking and understanding in your scriptures, that their hearts would burn with the holy passion and zeal for the sake of the gospel, that they would be burdened and, and, and have that sense of urgency to share the good news of hope in Christ's name with those who are lost all around them. Give them wisdom as they seek to engage with a very hostile culture for the sake of Christ. Lord, and we pray that you would use their small efforts for great impact for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, bless them, strengthen them, give them grace to continue serving well. And Lord, as we come before you in your word now, please give us ears that hear, minds that are clear and undistracted, hearts that are ready to receive what you have to say to us today. Lord, we ask that you'd be with us and glorify your name in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as I've mentioned, uh, today we are continuing to look into this riveting and unfortunately controversial topic of the Sabbath. Um, as I've said, I think it was last week or maybe it was the week before, I, I don't really understand why this has to be so controversial. Um, when you take a balanced and what I, what I believe to be a mature look at what the scriptures have to say to us on this issue, it doesn't seem like it ought to be as controversial as it is. Um, well, last week and today we are seeking to answer a few questions about the Sabbath in relation to the Christian and last week we looked at the biblical evidence showing us that the apostles and the early church treated the first day of the week as a day of worship. And what's so important about that is that what they were doing on that day of worship paralleled what the Israelites would do on the seventh day Sabbath. They were engaging in worship unto the Lord, worship that the Lord had commanded his people to give him in the law of Moses, we looked at Leviticus 23 last week, that there were elements of worship that the Lord commanded Israel to give to him that we see being offered by the church, but not on the seventh day, but on the first day of the week, the Lord's day. And that shows us, even in scripture, that there was a switch uh, from the point of Christ's resurrection. There was a switch from seventh day Sabbath to first day, what we might call Christian Sabbath. 
belonging to the new creation begun in Christ and the new covenant inaugurated with his blood. We were looking at that last week. That was one of the questions that have come up in our study of the Sabbath. Now today we're going to look at a few other questions together. They are good questions, but they are challenging questions, okay? And again, there's going to be a lot of heavy teaching today, and there's really no way I can get around that. But let's remember, teaching is the pathway to worship. Doctrine is what enables us to worship God in spirit and in truth. And that's what we're after. And so I'm going to do my best to answer these questions today. And uh, without further, further ado, let's get into this question. So last week we were saying that we see in the New Testament a switch from the observance of the Sabbath day on, on the 7th to observing the Sabbath on the first day of the week. Now, if the New Testament shows Christians treating the first day of the week as a Sabbath day of worship, then another question naturally arises, which is how should we think about Paul's statements in the New Testament, which seem to say that it is no longer necessary for Christians to observe the Sabbath? If we're saying that in Scripture we find evidence of early believers observing the Sabbath on the first day of the week, then how do we make sense of statements from Paul that seem to say it's no longer necessary for Christians to observe the Sabbath? Isn't that a contradiction? Aren't we not taking into account something that's clearly stated in Scripture? Well, we'll look at that together. Now, what are these, what are these verses? Well, there are three common verses that are, or passages that are pointed to to say that the Sabbath is no longer binding on Christians in the New Covenant. Let me just run through those briefly. First of all, we have Romans 14, verses 5 to 6, where Paul writes, One person esteems one day above another, and another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat, to the Lord, does not eat, and gives thanks to God. Now, don't these verses seem to indicate that for Christians, there are no more special days to be observed? That there are no more unique or significant days that constrain the Christian to observe? And more than that, don't these verses seem to say that observing one day as more important than another is now under the new covenant, not a matter of law, but a matter of conscience? I mean, Paul says here, let each one be convinced in their own mind about whether they're going to observe a day or not. So doesn't that take observance of a particular special day out of the realm of law and command and place it into the realm of conscience and what someone can or cannot do depending on what they think is right or wrong? So for some, to work that out, for some it might mean, well, my Sabbath, my, my day of worship is Friday. And based on this teaching, I can, I can worship the Lord with a clean conscience on Friday, not Sunday. Or maybe my day of worship is Monday or Tuesday or Saturday night. I can go to church on Saturday night and then have my Sunday free and clear. Or maybe others will say, my Sabbath is every day of the week. And I observe the Sabbath every day because all days are alike. 
Don't these verses seem to give freedom for people to view the Sabbath day in that manner? If so, how then can we say that the Sabbath command still abides for Christians today and ought to be observed on the first day of the week? Or how about Galatians chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, where Paul writes, But now, after you have known God, or rather, have come to be known by God, I think that's the right way to translate that, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, Paul says, lest I have labored over you in vain. Now, these verses clearly condemn the observance of days as something that is weak and beggarly. Does that not include the day of the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, under the New Covenant? Paul says observing these days is something that is weak. It's something that's beggarly. That is, it's something that's impoverished. It has no weight or value behind it. Paul even sees it as a turning back to the weak forms of worship that were under the Old Covenant, which included observing the Sabbath day, right? Paul says, I'm concerned for you who do this because it it may show that your faith in Christ is in vain. Now, don't these verses seem to indicate that Christians are not expected by God to observe a Sabbath day under the New Covenant? Isn't that what Paul's saying? Or how about Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17? This is the third and, and probably the most significant passage that is pointed to on this issue. Where Paul writes, Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. Right? Here Paul's actually using the word. Let no one judge you in regard to Sabbaths, which are only a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ, or the substance belongs to Christ. Amen. Well, amen. We, we all ought to amen that verse. What are we amening when we amen that verse? Nowhere does Paul seem to condemn the practice of Sabbath-keeping in the church more clearly than in these verses. He explicitly describes or mentions Sabbath-keeping as an act of turning away from Christ in order to hold on to shadows, right? Shadows, things, things that, are, that are cast upon the ground that are signifying a greater reality that's moving towards you, right? Paul says, you, by observing Sabbaths, you are turning away from Christ who is the substance of these things and you're clinging to a shadow. So how could anyone reading this verse or these verses combined... How could anyone not say that for Christians, we have been set free from the Sabbath, and the Sabbath day is no longer binding on those who are in Christ? Isn't that what these verses are teaching? Well, let me start to answer that question by saying that it may be surprising to those who think this way to learn that in part, I actually agree with what they're saying. I agree that in these verses, Paul is clearly and strongly condemning certain forms of worship that are no longer compatible with the worship of God under the new covenant, which includes a certain kind of Sabbath keeping. 
But I think it's important to keep in mind that in the context of these verses, what Paul is condemning, you got to listen to this, pay attention. It's important to keep in mind that in the context of these verses, what Paul is condemning is not the principle of the Sabbath. What he is condemning is worshiping God according to the old covenant forms of Sabbath worship. That's what Paul's condemning when he says that if you go worship God according to this, you are turning away from Christ and turning back to shadows, emptiness, vanity. Now, that this, this is really where it's important to recognize a difference that I've mentioned over the, I have mentioned over the last few weeks. There is a difference between the principle of a Sabbath day as a day of worship and the various forms that the Sabbath day worship has been housed in. Okay, so, so in the very beginning of creation, God established the principle of Sabbath worship, that there would be one day in seven where his creatures would rest from their labors and engage in a wholehearted, focused worship of the Lord on his day, right? Now, that's the principle of Sabbath worship, that, that there's a day where God expects us to draw away from the world and focus in a very special and unique way upon him and him alone, okay? That's the principle. But that principle has been housed in or clothed in various forms at different times throughout human history. So, for example, what, what was the form of Sabbath day worship from the very beginning of old creation? Anybody follow me there? What was the form of Sabbath day worship from the very beginning of old creation? Seventh day. The seventh day was the day sanctified for worship of God's creatures, his, his, his image bearers. I should be more specific. From the very beginning of creation, the principle of Sabbath day was contained within seventh day Sabbath worship. Last day of the week Sabbath worship, right? And under Israel, we see that very reality expanded and broadened to include more Sabbath observance than what was contained within that initial command of creation. So, for example, with, with Israel, we see, we see the uh, Sabbath principle contained within forms of worship that included various weekly forms, monthly forms, yearly forms, and even sabbatical year forms of observing the Lord's Sabbath. And under the law of Moses, what we find is that in all of these outward forms that were placed upon Israel, they were instituted for national Israel only. They were enforced by the death penalty and excommunication. And all of it was instituted as a shadow form of worship that was pointing to a greater reality that was coming. So, so okay. I know this can be complex, but did you follow, did you follow what I said there? There is a difference between the substance of the command to dedicate a day of worship unto the Lord and the form in which obedience to that command would be fulfilled. So the day of worship is what the Lord expects. In the old covenant and in the old creation, what was that day of worship? It was the seventh day. In the new covenant and in the new creation, what is the day of worship? What's the form 
that obedience to that principle of Sabbath worship takes. It's the first day, right? What Paul is condemning in these verses is the idea that Christians under the new covenant have to observe the old covenant forms of Sabbath worship in order to be pleasing to the Lord. Just pay attention to the context, right? Because that shows us what Paul's dealing with in these, in these letters, in these verses. In Romans 14, what is Paul addressing? He's addressing issues of conscience that were coming up within the life of the body in Rome. Now, the life of the body in Rome was made up of both Jew and Gentile believer. So what you have there in Rome are people who have been schooled and indoctrinated within a heritage that was... That was um, replete with old covenant forms of worship. You have Jewish believers brought to Christ who had been raised upon old covenant forms of worshiping God. So for them, their entire relationship with God was defined by weekly Sabbaths, various feasts throughout the year, dietary laws, observing sabbatical years, everything about their relationship with God from the moment they were born up till that moment had been defined by those old covenant regulations. And yet within the same body of believers, there were Gentiles who had not been raised under those old covenant regulations. And get this, there were even Jews, Jewish believers, who recognized that all of those old covenant forms were pointing to Christ. And they no longer felt bound in their consciences to observe those days or those dietary laws or those feasts. That's what Paul is dealing with in Romans 14. He's not dealing with the principle of offering to the Lord a day of worship. He's dealing with those old covenant forms of worship that have now passed away because Christ has come. You see that? Do you agree with that? You can shake your head, no, I don't agree with that. That's okay. Or Galatians chapter 4. I mean, everyone knows what Galatians is dealing with, right? There's, there's something that we refer to as the Galatian heresy. What was it? It was trying to bring new covenant believers under the trappings of old covenant worship. Right? And what was the major thing that the book of Galatians was dealing with? Yes, works, but what was the specific thing that was being dealt with in Galatians? Circumcision, right? Circumcision was an outward form of worship that was instituted under the Old Covenant. And there were these heretics within the churches of Galatia who were saying that if you're going to be faithful to God, if you're going to serve Christ, what Christ has done for you is not enough. You've got to become Jewish in order to be a Christian. You know, there's a modern day expression of that, by the way. You want to know what that is? Hebrew Roots Movement. Hebrew Roots Movement is a heresy. You were saying that in order to honor Christ and in order to be faithful to him, you've got to adopt Old Covenant feasts and Old Covenant rituals in order to be pleasing to him. What is that other than seeking to add something to the finished and perfect work of Christ? To say that I've got to do something else besides what Christ has done in order to make the Lord happy with me. That's works. And Paul says that's anathema. Let that be cursed of God. That's a false gospel. That's what Paul's addressing in Galatia. 
in these churches of Galatia. He's addressing these, these, these teachings that were saying, you've got to adopt outward forms of worship that were instituted under the old covenant in order to be faithful to the Lord. And what Paul is preaching in Galatians is, you've been set free from all of that, Christian. Jesus Christ who died, Jesus Christ who lived for you, Jesus Christ who died for you, Jesus Christ who rose again from the dead on your behalf, he's done it all. And the only thing that matters at this moment is faith working through love. You love him and you work by faith in his name. Not working unto faith in his name or working unto acceptance with him. So what Paul's addressing in Galatians 4 is not the principle of Sabbath worship, a day of worship unto the Lord. He's addressing the outward forms that had become trappings being placed upon new covenant believers in the Galatian churches. And Paul says, don't you dare submit to that because that's a corruption of the gospel. Or how about Colossians? The book of Colossians is addressing some kind of weird form of Jewish asceticism. Some kind of mixture of old covenant practices and feasts and rituals and regulations partnered together with some kind of man-made philosophical scheme. And so Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, he's reminding these believers in verse 8, he says, don't be taken captive by vain philosophies and foolish speculations of the world rather than being taken captive according to Christ because in Christ dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form and in him you have been made complete. You see what he says there? What Paul's arguing after in the, in the book of Colossians, he's arguing against any notion that you've got to add something to the finished work of Christ in order to be made perfect in the eyes of God. He says, no, that's a corruption of the gospel. You're being taken captive by something other than the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've got to repent. Be on guard against that. So when he gets to Colossians 2, 16 and 17, and he's talking about these Sabbaths and these new moons and, and these years and these feasts, what he's referring to are very clearly the pattern of festivals and the cycle of Sabbath keeping that was instituted under the Old Covenant law. You can go read about that, for example, in Leviticus 23. In fact, that same phrase, new moons and Sabbaths and years, that phrase appears often in the prophets, where the Lord says, I'm not pleased in your new moons and festivals and in your Sabbaths and, and in your feast. I would rather have obedience from the heart, right? What are your new moon feasts to me? You see that in, in Isaiah chapter 1, for example. That, that's what Paul is condemning. He's condemning this, this, this uh, weird mixture of philosophical thinking with old covenant forms of worship that were being laid upon the believers in Colossae. And he says to them, you don't need any of that. You don't need any of that to make you acceptable in the eyes of God. In Jesus Christ, you have been made perfect. So these are what, this, this is what Paul is condemning in these verses. Any sense that believers in Christ are still bound by old covenant forms of worship, including old covenant forms of Sabbath day worship. And so I would agree that to worship God according to these forms would be a turning away from Christ. To worship God according to these forms would be an abandonment of our hope in the finished work of Christ and the gospel. 
It would be nothing less than turning back to the bondage of seeking fellowship with God on the basis of the law. I agree with that. But if these texts were saying that there is no longer a special day of worship to be observed in the New Testament, then we have a hard time explaining why the apostles, including the Apostle Paul, sanctified the first day of the work as a special first day of the week as a special day of worship. So understand what I just said there. If these verses truly are teaching that there are no more special days to be observed by the church in the new covenant, then we have a hard time explaining why the apostles sanctioned the first day of the week as the day of Christian worship. We've already seen this, right? In, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, where the disciples were gathering together for worship, right? And they were gathering on which day of the week? On the first day of the week. They were gathering on the first day of the week as a, as a local church body. They were coming together in the name of Christ to proclaim their hope at the Lord's table. And they were devoting themselves to the Apostle Paul's preaching, and all of that taking place on the first day of the week. You see, the same uh, expectation that believers would gather together and worship on the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 2, where Paul instructs both the Galatian churches and the church at Corinth that when they come together on the first day of the week, when they gather as a church for worship on the first day of the week, that's when they were to take up their offering that they were going to send to the churches in the lands of Judea. Why the first day of the week? Because that was the day in which they were gathering to worship. And so what we find in the New Testament is that the first day of the week was purposefully set apart to be the day when corporate worship would take place. So, when Paul urged believers not to forsake the assembling of themselves together for worship on the Lord's day, did he somehow forget about what he had written in Romans chapter 14? When Paul was expecting and even commanding believers to gather together on the first day of the week, was he somehow oblivious all of a sudden to what he had written in Romans chapter 14? No. Was he just being inconsistent with what he had written in Romans 14 when he says all days are the same? No, he wasn't. I think the fact that they instituted the first day of the week as, 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 a, as a day of worship, the apostles of Christ sanctioning that day as a day of worship, what that shows us is that what Paul is talking about in Galatians and Colossians and Romans is not first day worship of Christians. I believe that's what's, what that proves to us. You guys follow that there? I don't mean to be so back and forth. Did I lose anybody on that, on that path? Do I need to come back and... Rehash the ground? No, some of you are like, no, please, please don't do that. <laughs> Paul wasn't being inconsistent in his practice with worship in the church, especially when he commanded believers to gather together on the first day of the week and to worship the Lord on that day together. This is, a, this is what the church has historically understood Paul to be talking about in these passages. And so if you're going to disagree with me, you have freedom to do that. But you need to argue against the case that's been made by the church historically. 
This is how they've understood these verses. This is what they've understood these verses to mean. And so you're not arguing against me by disagreeing with me. You've got to argue against the whole history of the church. Okay? I just want to throw that out there. It's like someone coming up to you whenever you're witnessing to them and saying, are you saying, are you, do you mean to say that if I don't believe in Jesus, you're saying I'm going to go to hell? It's like, well, actually, what I'm saying is, is that God says if you don't believe in Jesus, his son, you're going to go to hell. It's not me that made this up. It's, it's God, right? So kind of a similar, similar flavor to that. If, if you're going to disagree with this, that's, you have the freedom to do that. But you need to make sure that you're disagreeing in a way that's consistent with the testimony of Scripture. You're actually addressing these arguments that have been made historically in the church. So... Now, let me point out one more thing in relation to this question before we move on. Um, I think you can tell, I think you can see that the main issue in all of these verses that Paul is addressing is the issue of the Christian's freedom in Christ. That's what's at stake in what Paul is condemning or what he's addressing, these heresies he's addressing in these letters. Yes, in the New Testament, there is a certain day where Christians gather together to worship and commemorate the resurrected Lord Jesus. But even in our observance of that day, our observance of that day is regulated by the spiritual freedom and the liberty that we enjoy and walk in by the Spirit of God in Christ's name. So, so what I'm saying is, in the New Covenant, yes, we have a, a specific day of worship where Christians gather together to exalt in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. It's called the Lord's Day, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. We have a day called the Lord's Day where we gather to worship. But our observance of worship on that day cannot be shackling us and restricting our freedom in Christ of worship in His name. You understand know what I'm saying there? Like Philippians 3.3, we, we Christians, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Holy Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Our worship of the Lord on the Lord's day needs to reflect that reality. Not, 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 um, not con uh, constrain it or, or uh, obscure it. So, so what Paul is addressing here is Christian freedom in, in the worship of the Lord. We're not shackled by old covenant forms of Sabbath day keeping. In our worship of the Lord, we're set free by the Holy Spirit to glory in Christ Jesus together as his people. Now that leads to our next question, which is uh, our third in total. What does it look like for Christians to keep the Sabbath on the Lord's day under the new covenant? If we're going to say that the Lord's Day is, is a Sabbath day of worship unto the Lord, and yet it is not to be uh, confined to old covenant forms of Sabbath day worship, then what does it look like to worship the Lord on the Sabbath? Well, in light of what we've seen, we can definitively say we don't sanctify the Lord's Day worship according to old covenant forms, as I, as I just said. It's, 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 it's not about forms and rituals. The focus on the Lord's Day is not on do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Our, our focus on the Lord's Day is more positive than that. It's about what do we do on the Lord's Day, not what do we not do. 
use a double negative there. See, even our keeping of the Lord's Day must be in line with our freedom and liberty in Christ. The day of worship, in other words, was never designed by God to be a burden, but rather it was designed by God to be a day when the freedom and the glory of our relationship with God would be put on display. And so whatever we're saying it looks like to worship the Lord on the Lord's day, it cannot look like a burdensome, um, irksome task, right? That we're just restricted, like, like the picture I often get is you need to sit down in your room, you need to sit on the couch all day long, you need to not let your eyes wander on anything, and you just sit there sullen and kind of fighting against your own tendency to do something fun. That's what it means to keep the Sabbath day. Well, that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not Christian Sabbath keeping. So our attempts to keep the Lord's Day should never become loaded down with burdens as it did with the Pharisees, right? So what we're seeking to do in answering this question, we're not trying to come up with some Christian Talmud to replace the Jerusalem Talmud or the Babylonian Talmud. And believe me, I know that this is how the Lord's Day has been treated before, and I think that's at the heart of the contention, why this is such a contentious issue. For example, I read of an account from the Netherlands in the late 1890s, where uh, in, in Yurk, in the Netherlands, the, there was a, a, Yurk was a fishing community, and in the late 1890s, uh, there were some church members who would go out on Saturdays and set their nets and their traps and get all their gear set up on Saturday. They would leave it alone all day Sunday and then come back Monday and retrieve whatever was, was in the trap or, or, or in the nets. While these church members were brought up on charges of breaking the Lord's Day Sabbath because technically, according to church authorities, they were working on the Sabbath. How were they working? Well, they had set their nets. And their nets and their, and their gear, they were collecting fish and crab and whatever else all night long. And so, by extension, because it was their equipment that was catching fish on the Sabbath day, they were breaking the Sabbath. That's kind of tedious and arbitrary, isn't it? Or there's another one I read about in, in Alistair Begg's Pathway to Freedom. I read about another incident in Scotland in the 17th century where a man was disciplined and even brought up in, in civil court on charges of breaking the Sabbath because he was guilty of smiling on the Lord's Day. Yeah, yeah, you did too. Yeah, yeah. Quit that smiling. This is the Lord's Day. No room for smiling today. Doesn't that sound just ridiculous? And you know, it's amazing. It's shocking to us to hear things like that. Like, could anyone really think that, that what it means to break the Lord's day includes smiling on His day? What about the joy of the Lord being our strength? Like, can, can we not show our joy in Christ by smiling on His day? It's a, it's a lot easier to look at people who are smiling than to look at people who are frowning or just stoic, you know. No, that's, that's, that's the kind of legalistic and, and, and rigid uh, law-keeping that people can, can come up with on this issue when they take their eyes off of Christ. And that's not what we want to be guilty of. So as we ask ourselves the question, 
what does it look like for Christians to honor the Lord on the Sabbath day, I think there's a simple rule that can help us tremendously. It's been provided for us actually in the phrase that we use to describe the first day of the week, and that is the Lord's day. I think in that description, we have a, a very simple rule that helps us tremendously in understanding how we are to use the Lord's day for the glory of God and our worship of him. You know, we often use language without giving much thought to what we're saying uh, or what we mean by what we're saying. And the Lord's day is an example of that. You know, this phrase comes from the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, where John refers to the first day of the week as the Lord's day. Now, we know that he's referring to the first day of the week because that's the only day that makes sense in calling that day the Lord's day, right? Because what John is saying in, in using that phrase, the Lord's day, he's distinguishing it from every other day of the week. And what distinguishes the first day as the Lord's day is that was the day when Christ rose from the dead. That was the day when Christ entered into his eternal rest, that was the day when our victory was secured in his name. It is the Lord's day. And so Sunday is the Lord's day. And to say that it is the Lord's day is to acknowledge that this day belongs to the Lord in a unique and in a special way. Right? So very often people will point to Romans chapter 14 and say, Paul says all days are alike. There's not one day that's more special than the other now. Okay, well, I, I can understand that in a certain context, but what then does the Apostle John mean when he calls this day the Lord's Day? Isn't he making that a special day? A unique day? Yeah, he is. Now, even whenever we say that today is the Lord's Day, aren't we saying something pretty profound? At least what we're saying is, is that this day is not our day, Right? When I say that today is the Lord's day, I am confessing automatically by that, by that statement that this is not my day. Therefore, we, we uphold the uniqueness of this day when the way we conduct ourselves on this day reflects the reality that it is the Lord's day. What do I mean by that? Let me give three what I hope to be simple guidelines for helping us think through how to honor the lordship of Christ on his day. Number one, we honor the Lord on his day when we rest from work that can be done on other days of the week. We honor the Lord on the Lord's day, on his day, when we rest from work that can be done on other days of the week. And, that, and that's just in, in line with God's heart revealed in the law, right? That, that the Sabbath day would be a day of resting from our normal labors and our normal activities. In other words, uh, Sunday is not a day for our own activities and our own labors that rule our time and attention the other six days of the week. If it's, so in other words, if it's an activity that can wait for another day, then don't do it on Sunday, Okay? That's a general guideline. And let me add a couple elements to that. So this would be like guideline 1A, okay? I'll add to that 
that resting from your work also includes resting from distractions. What are included in distractions? Well, I think Facebook is at the top of the list. Just turn it off. Like, are you so addicted to something? Are you so ruled and controlled by something that you can't go a single day without looking at it? What about Twitter? Let's, let's cease from the distraction that Twitter is. Right? I, don't, I don't need to know who tweeted out what in regard to whatever issue. It just, it just doesn't matter on the Lord's Day. Isn't the Lord's Day about the Lord? Why do I care about what Johnny Depp has to say on any issue? I don't. <laughs> Especially on the Lord's Day. I don't care. I don't care what Lady Gagas has to say about anything or, or, or whoever else you want to put into I don't even care what Trump has to say about anything on the Lord's Day. Who said what? Yeah, Mr. President Trump. I don't even care what he has to say on the Lord's Day. Yeah. Amen. That's right, buddy. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Well, how about the news? I mean, there's no reason a Christian should watch CNN. I, I just, I'll throw it out there. You can disagree with me if you want. That's fine. It's a Christian liberty issue. But <laughs> I don't think you should be watching Fox News either, if we can just put that out as well. But, but let's just take news in general, right? Isn't news so distracting to you? Just, just, just the realities of what are going on in our world. We are inundated with this negative messaging all week long. Why not take the Lord's day and say, I'm not turning it on today. I'm not going to let my mind and my heart be distracted from Christ and brought down into the cesspit of this world. I'm not going to do it today. I think we would all do really well to turn the news off on the Lord's Day. And quit being distracted. You watch the news in the morning. Is your, does the news, all right, does it cause worship to percolate within your heart? <laughs> I'm serious. Or, or does it help you focus your mind upon Christ on his day and, and prepare you to enter into the corporate gathering of the people of God? The news is not going to help you do that. So shut it off. Honoring the Lord on the Lord's day means taking your mind off of lesser things and setting your mind on things above. Can I add one more sub-point to that? I think also that in most circumstances, resting from your normal work that can be done on the other six days of the week would include resting from activities that support or take advantage of other people not resting on the Lord's Day. Resting from activities that support or take advantage of other people not resting on the Lord's Day. You know what I'm saying there? Don't go to businesses on Lord's Day. If you can help it. That would be my encouragement. That's not a law. That would be my encouragement. So, so number one, simple guideline, honor the Lord on his day by ceasing from work that can be done on the other days of the week. 
Number two, honor the Lord on his day. We honor the Lord on his day when we devote ourselves in a special way to worshiping him on his day. So that includes gathering together with his people. That includes worshiping corporately, sitting under the preaching of the word of God, singing songs together, joining together in prayer, celebrating at the Lord's table as his people, spending the day setting your mind on things above. That's, that, is, that is seeking to worship the Lord on his day. It's, it's not enough. You're not honoring the Lord's day simply by ceasing from certain things. You have to actually engage in other kinds of activities if you're truly going to honor the Lord. And those activities would be activities of worship. And, and let me say something here too, just as a parenthesis. When we say that today is the Lord's day, what we don't mean is today is the Lord's morning. Because that's really what Sunday has become, isn't it? I go to church in the morning and I've got all afternoon to just do whatever I want. It's like another Saturday. It's a bonus. Is that really what it looks like? I'm not trying to lay a law on you, but I just want to ask the question, is that really what it looks like to honor the Lord on his day? Just to come to service in the morning. I'm not convinced that it is. All right, so a third guideline, okay? Jesus also said that we honor him when we put the love and compassion of God on display through acts of mercy and deeds of necessity. We honor the Lord on the Lord's day when we engage in acts of mercy and deeds of necessity. You know, Luke 14, 5, sometimes your donkey or your ox is going to fall in the ditch. And you've got to get that animal out. Or let's just bring it into our modern day time. Sometimes you're going to get a flat tire on your car. And you're going to need to change that tire, even on the Lord's day. You know what? When you do that, because it's a work of necessity, you're not dishonoring the Lord by doing that. You know, in Luke 13, verses 15 and 16, sometimes there is a daughter of Abraham who has been bound by Satan, who ought to be released from her bondage on the Lord's day. Or put it into a modern context, when God providentially brings you into a situation where you can help a person in need on the Lord's day, the only way to honor the Lord in that situation is to put the gospel on display in that moment. If someone who has a need is providentially brought across your path on the Lord's day, the only way for you to honor the Lord in that moment is by engaging in that opportunity with the gospel. Putting the love of Christ on display for that sinner whom the Lord has brought across your path. Seeking to do good, right? To engage that person with the life of Christ. That's, that's, a, that's, that's honoring to the Lord on his day. That's not breaching the principle of the Sabbath. And so the rule in all of this is very simple, okay? And, and we're already, we're going to have to leave the last question for next week. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll address that next week. But let's, let me give you... Let me give you an illustration of what it looks like to honor the Lord on the Lord's day. And I hope this will be helpful. Imagine that you recognize that you don't spend enough quality time together with your family. Some of us can identify with that. 
with that. Let's say that you recognize you don't spend enough quality time together with your family and you decide that you are going to start building into your schedule one family day a week. One family day a week. What would that day look like? What would it look like for you to consecrate one day a week for the sake of your family? Well, I can tell you what it wouldn't look like for me. For me, it would not look like checking my emails on the family day. It would not look like checking text messages and phone calls on my family day. It would not look like me scheduling meetings with other people on that day. It would not look like me spending time by myself by going out to a baseball game or playing golf or cutting the grass. Those are maybe appropriate things to do at other times, but definitely not on a day that I have devoted to my family. See, a family day would look like sanctifying the entire day to spending time with my family, right? I can't say that I'm going to honor a family day with my family and then go off on that day and do my own thing. To have a family day means that I am devoting all of my time, all of my energy, all of my focus on that day to spending time with my family. Doing things together, drawing away from everything else as a family and having all of my time and all of my focus directed and oriented towards enjoying time together with them. That would be a family day. Isn't that kind of a picture of what it might look like to honor the Lord on the Lord's day? It would look like not engaging in certain activities and pressing on to engage in others. So, so it would be a day sanctified from all other activities and burdens and pressures that accompany normal daily life. And it would mean consecrating that time so that you would spend the entirety of it in devotion and in focus upon the Lord. Devotion to and focus upon Christ. So that, so that focusing on the Lord becomes the one goal of the Lord's day. Right? Is that simple? That's simple, right? Sunday is the Lord's day, and we honor him on his day by sanctifying the entirety of that day unto him, just as we would a family day, sanctifying that unto our family. Now, in closing, I'm going to close here. This closing part may be a disappointment to many of you, because this is where my instruction about how to honor the Lord on his day is going to end. What I mean by that is some of you want me to tell you specifically what you can and what you cannot do on the Lord's day. You want me to be the regulator for you, to say, uh, you can do this, you can't do that. Do this, don't do that. We'll give you a checklist. Right? Well, I can't do that because I think that that is actually stepping into a realm where only the Holy Spirit is allowed to go. But what I can give you is this simple rule. Keep the day holy to the Lord. And you're going to have to do the hard work of figuring out how that applies for you. Keep the day holy to the Lord. 
So our calling on the Lord's Day is to devote the whole day to Him. Many of the particulars regarding what you ought to do or not do on the Lord's Day are matters of conscience that you're going to have to seek the Lord about. Uh, can I, for example, can I garden on the Lord's Day? Can I ride my bike on the Lord's Day? Can I go fishing on the Lord's Day? I can't give you Mishnah or rabbinical teaching to, to govern those kinds of activities for you. You are going to have to seek the Lord about those kinds of things and look to him to lead you and to teach you what you can do. Now, that's not to say that there are not uh, things that are clearly addressed in Scripture. There are certain things that you must do on the Lord's Day. For example, Hebrews 10.25, you must gather together with the people of Christ on the Lord's Day. That's a non-negotiable, right? Because we are commanded, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. What is that talking about? Well, from the rest of Scripture, we know what that's talking about. That's talking about the gathering of the local assembly, the gathering of local believers. You can't, you can't neglect that and still be honoring the Lord on the Lord's Day, right? There, there are other things such as... Um, Observing the Lord's table, practicing church discipline, sitting under the reading, preaching, and teaching of God's word, uh, not doing your normal work on the Sabbath day. Like, those are non-negotiables. Those are just clearly revealed in the scriptures. But going for a hike or spending time together as a family on the boat or grilling on the Lord's day, these are the kinds of things that must be left to the Lord to regulate by his spirit and his word in your conscience. And so I would encourage you to go to God with these things and express to him your desire to honor and worship him on his day and ask wisdom and ask for guidance from him because he gives to all who ask in faith liberally. Right? So I think Brian Borgman had some very helpful guidance on this. He said, devote the entire day to doing what is restful and refreshing in the Lord and avoid anything that hinders that. Very simple guidance. Devote the entire day to doing what is restful and refreshing in the Lord. And avoid anything that hinders that. Now, I'm not sure how we're going to handle this last question. It's only a page and a half of my notes. But we'll look at that next week. Okay. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I know that this is a very challenging topic, and I, I definitely do not want to be, um, I don't want to be guilty of confusing people on this matter. Lord, would you please um, apply and, and direct our hearts and minds in your word and, and to your truth in a way that's helpful, in a way that's engaging, in a way that applies to each one of our lives individually? And above any and everything else, Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that long to worship you. And we pray that by your spirit, you would give us wisdom to know how to do that in our days, especially on the Lord's day. Lord, bless us as we, as we sing to you, as we celebrate at your table, as we worship you together. Lord, would you please accompany us in this time in Jesus' name. Amen.